policeman came to the door, uh, knocked on the door. Neither of my parents were home uh, at the time, and uh, they had gotten reports of neglect and, and domestic uh, violence. And so uh, called up another one. We ended up with uh, taking two police cruisers to a, a battered woman and children's shelter. Mm. Uh, the officers were, were quite kind. They helped us pack up a you know, brown paper bag of clothes that uh, we could take with us. And we went uh, to a shelter and we stayed there. Welcome to Stories of Hope in Hard Times, the show that explores how people endure and even thrive in difficult times, all with God's help. I'm your host, Tamara K. Anderson. Join me on a journey to find inspiring stories of hope and wisdom learned in life's hardest moments. Today, my guest was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. He grew up in an abusive home and then went into the foster care system where he was from age six until 18. He beat the stereotype and graduated from BYU with a degree in finance and then received two law degrees, both one from BYU and one from Northwestern. During his career, he specialized in intellectual property cases, where he has been recognized as one of the world's leading IP strategists. Recently, he quit his law practice so that he can spend his time with his wife and five children who are his priority. I am happy to introduce Robert P.K. Mooney. Rob, are you ready to share your story of hope? I am, Tamara. Awesome. So you are one of the people who has defied the odds. You grew up in a crazy situation and you have totally turned that around. So let's talk about that journey. Why don't you first of all take us to your home life and then how you ended up in, in foster care? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, millions of kids in America uh, have parents who don't provide for them, uh, whether it's uh, providing for their physical needs uh, or their emotional or spiritual needs. And uh, that was present uh, pretty thoroughly in my home. Uh, my mother was, uh, was very sick physically uh, and emotionally uh, and mentally, and I had a father who was very abusive. And so there was sexual abuse, physical abuse, and emotional abuse uh, in the home. And it uh, left some, some pretty significant scars, uh, you know, scars on the inside and scars on the outside. Right. Um, and so it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a rough go growing up. Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, we still had happiness and joy at times. It wasn't all pure darkness. I had seven siblings. Uh, both my parents were, had previous marriages, and each of them had children from a previous marriage. And uh, together, they had seven of us that wow. lived with them in Hawaii. Uh, my mother's uh, two oldest children, they lived with us uh, for most of growing up, but the as soon as they were able to get away from the situation, they moved away. They moved, sure. they moved to the mainland uh, to, to go to college. And so it was uh, me and my six uh, full, full biological siblings uh, living there. And um, yeah, not a lot to eat at times, uh, not places to stay, and uh, having to deal with, uh, with the trauma that comes from abuse and neglect. That was, that was a, a real... Uh, a real thing. Uh, thankfully, there was courageous people who lets you know let the police and social services know. Uh, one day, uh, when I was six years old, uh, policemen you know, came to the door, uh, knocked on the door. Neither of my parents were home uh, at the time, 
and uh, they had gotten reports of neglect and, and domestic uh, violence. And so uh, called up another one. We ended up with uh, taking two police cruisers to a, a battered woman and children's shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the officers were, were quite kind. They helped us pack up a you know, brown paper bag of clothes that uh, we could take with us. And we went uh, to a shelter and we stayed there. My mother was contacted. She joined us at the shelter. Uh, however, within uh, a, a short period of time, uh, the social workers there recognized that she was not uh, mentally and physically able to take care of these seven children. Right. Uh, so we were put into state's custody. And that's when my, uh, my journey in foster care began. Wow. So as a young child, I'm sure that being ripped from your home and everything you knew, even though it was maybe not the most ideal situation, must have been awfully hard <laughs> on you and on your siblings. No, that, that, that's right. Um, so it, my first, the first foster home was just an emergency place, placement. We got to find a place for these kids. Thankfully, my, my best friend, uh, their family heard about it and they signed up to take me in. So I actually, really? my first foster home was, was living with my best friend, oh. uh, which was really cool, yeah. but I was not with my siblings. Uh, they searched, it took them a few weeks to find a home that would take seven children. Oh, um, wow. And they were successful in finding a home. Unfortunately, um, my older siblings, uh, there was some pretty good trauma and you are concerned about being taken away from your parents, even though the situation's bad, especially a mother who's not uh, the the principal perpetrator of right. the abuse and neglect. Right. And uh, so when we were at the hospital getting shots, my older sister ran away. Really? And so she never made it to that foster home. And the day after we got there, my older brother ran away from that foster home. So it was me and my my four younger siblings there. And uh, I had I was at a new school. And I remember, uh, so this is a couple weeks. I'm at my second home now, and a couple weeks at a school where there's a you know, there's a bully who's who was uh, was picking on me a lot. Um, uh, home life is different. We've got different parents. They had children of their own trying to deal with having five new kids in their home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was it was tough. And I remember just putting my head down on my desk and just closing my eyes and just thinking, all right, when I, when I open my eyes, this is all just going to have been a dream. Mm. Wow. And so, so even when you know, things are rough, you still, you still want to be there. Yeah. You want to be with your brothers and sisters, and you still have love for for the perpetrator, you know, um, and so that that's an interesting place to be. Yeah, my goodness. So, you went from foster care, home to home to home. I remember you telling me a story once about a marathon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Why, don't, why don't you tell me that story? Because I think it shows a little bit of the determination you had, even as a young child. And I think this is what you you've always had that inner determination. It, yeah, yeah. So, so it's actually before we were in, in foster care. When I was five years old, uh, we were we were living in a home uh, on on Oahu, mm-hmm. and uh, one Sunday morning, I, I see you know, hundreds, thousands of people running you know near our home and i'm like what are these people running from you know (laughs) and so i asked i asked my father who fancied himself something of a jogger and uh he of course knew it was the honolulu marathon Mm -hmm. Uh, that was a marathon that had been going on for about a decade at that point and was was fairly popular uh, and has become one of the largest marathons in, in in the country uh, but yeah, he tells me it's a marathon, which means nothing to me as a five-year-old. So I'm like, well, it's a marathon. Well, it's a race. Oh, all right. I get races. It's 26.2 miles. 
No idea what that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's long. Okay, I get that. But uh, I don't know that I had a full conception of what a mile was, let alone 26.2 miles. And, right. s- and, and so my five-year-old response was, uh, I can do that. <laughs> and um, and uh, anyway, so I, I was like, oh, I'm going to do that. When, when, when's the next one? It's, it's in a year. All right. Uh, I had seen Rocky, Sylvester Stallone's Rocky, and I knew I'd have to train. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, st- I started training. I, I convinced my older brother and sister to run with me. Huh. Uh, so my older brother, two years older than me, and then my sister, almost another two years, not quite, uh, older than, than him. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, what did you do in the early 80s for training? You did, you did push-ups, you did sit-ups, uh, and we, we ran. And where we were living was kind of the base of a hill mountain area uh, near a place called Hawaii Kai. And so we, we ran up the hill and then ran back down. It was about a mile and a half each way. Mm-hmm. And so we'd run three miles a day. And that was our training regimen. <laughs> and um, I, I somehow got in my head that, you know, when you're about to finish a race, uh-huh. you got to sprint. Ah. That might have been from a Rocky movie as well. I don't know. <laughs> but that's what we did. No, seriously, we, we, we would see the finish line and uh-huh. then we would we would just take off, you know. So the finish line being, all right, we're near our, near our house and right. we just take off. I understand I'm five, my brother's seven, my sister's nine. I'd lose every time, uh, but it's okay. That's what, what we did to train. Uh-huh. And at first, my father came with us. You know, he was, you know, I probably thought it was cute. Oh, yeah, these kids want to be like dad, the jogger or whatever. And I don't know. And so he did it, but he had issues and he dropped out pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, off doing, you know, the things um, that, uh, that he was doing. But we kept going at it. And sometimes my mother would drive a station wagon next to us, especially when we moved. We didn't, uh, we didn't staying there, but we continued to keep working. And my mom would drive a station wagon, you know, buy us, make sure that we were, you know, still alive. Um, go out about a mile, mile and a half, and we'd run back sprinting at the end. Um, sometimes my brothers and sisters didn't want to go, but uh, you know, I just would kept doing it. You know, I just wanted to do it. That's awesome. Um, so my, my a few months beforehand, my mother signed us up. And, um, and the night before the race, so this is, it's held in December, the first Sunday in December. And, um, uh, my mom doesn't come home the night before, which was, which was terrifying to me because she was the, the emotional support at, at home and she disappears, which sometimes she would go places, but sometimes she wouldn't because she, she was frail, uh, and, uh, her health wouldn't, wouldn't let her. And so this night it gets dark. She's not home. An hour later, she's still not home. Uh, and finally, it it was really late. She shows up. And where she was is she thought that she would make uniforms for us. And so she got she bought white shirts and then just uh, got you know, kind of puffy iron-on letters that said Mooney Bunch across these white shirts. And we had matching red runner shorts, short shorts, uh, with the white stripes down the side with matching white tube socks with red stripes on top. So we had uniforms to go run in. Oh, and, and, uh, and so, yeah, so then the you know, next morning, crazy early, um, we, we went down, uh, down to, to, to downtown. We had to park a decent ways away because there was a decent amount of cars parked everywhere. Sure. The race started well before sunrise. And uh, you know, hitchhiked to the starting line. There were some people going by, and we got, we got a ride and got in the midst of, of the starting line. And, um, you know, gun went off, megaphone uh, announced the start of the race, and it was just packed in with tons and tons of people. And here I am. I'm, five, I'm six at this point. I've, yeah. I've turned six, and everyone's huge. You know, there's just <laughs> yeah. there's giants all around me. 
And so it starts going very, very slowly at first because there's so many people. You're kind of just packed in there like sardines. And it takes a while, but eventually you get a little bit of space. And we get we get going. And I've got to take two, two and a half steps for every one of my fathers. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's running with us, right? He'd forgotten that we were running the race. And, you know, he gets this uniform. He's like, oh, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> um, and so... So anyway, we just started going and one mile turned into two and then I maxed out at my three miles um, and uh -huh. then just kept going. Um, 10 miles and then 11 and 12, my older brother and sister, you know, ended up outpacing me. Uh, so my older sure. sister, she was about 10 and my brother, brother eight. Um, so they outpaced, but my father, uh, for all, you know, his, his shortcomings, you know, he stayed back with a six-year-old son. Uh, make sure I was safe. He slowed his pace down and we just kind of kept plodding along. I had never ran anywhere near that length ever before. And I just kept running. In, in years, years since, people have asked me, did you run the whole thing? I said, yeah. I, I ran the entire way. Uh, I didn't, however, run the entire time. Right. Uh, because about mile 20 mm -hmm. was uh, when my my body told me what my my head wouldn't admit and it's just like just kid you're done <laughs> and uh, every everything seized up everything seized up uh we didn't have gatorade back back then <laughs> it had been invented but it wasn't widespread right uh your hydration were water cups and pineapple juice dole was the, the sponsor of the race uh and uh big dole pineapple sponges that were in uh, big, huge garbage uh, cans filled with water. Mm -hmm. So you'd grab a cup, you know, drink it, throw it down, uh, and then squeeze over. We didn't have electrolytes. Mm -hmm. We didn't have goo or any of these other things <laughs> that people have who run now. And and I was I was malnourished as it was. Right. Um, so, but I, but I made it twenty miles uh, before my muscles just completely seized up, and uh, the the pain was immense. I'd never had cramps like that before. I didn't know what cramps were then. I, it's only after I'm, um, you know, years later, I was like, oh, I had really, really bad cramps uh, <laughs> where it just, it felt like I had these tennis balls uh, just buried inside my hamstrings and the sides mm -hmm. of my legs. And I just, I, f I just ate the pavement, just, oh. just seized up and just, you know, went skin my knee, knees up and just was just crying. It was just, it hurt so bad. Um, and then, so... By that time, so this is mile 20. So yeah. we're getting kind of close to the end. Yeah, you know, you are. there's still six miles to go, twice as long as I'd ever run before, but it's kind of there. And um, and I'm not setting any speed records as a uh, six-year-old untrained athlete. And um, and so by this time, they've opened up the roads to let people you know start using some of the roads and the cross streets and the like. Nice. Uh, and these guys in this old you know brown beat-up pickup truck, uh, truck, a couple locals, they see this little kid. It's like. Oh, hey, you, you, you like a ride? You know, ask me if you, know, you need a ride. And um, before that had happened, my father had had held me in his arms for about twenty minutes, just rubbing my legs out, moving, you know, moving my leg, uh, bending my knee because I couldn't move them on my own without immense pain, and I couldn't keep them still without immense pain. Mm -hmm. it, and uh, so he just kept rubbing them out and stretching them out, rubbing them out, just to get the pain to go away until I could move them on my own. And it was about 20 minutes into this uh, of, of him trying to, to get some, some, uh, some movement and re pain relief when these guys come up and ask if, uh, if I want to ride. And he kind of stands up, my father does, and says, well, you know, it, it's up to you, but you've done a good job. You know, let's go home. Um, and I, 
I, I truly don't know this kid. Um, but uh, for whatever reason, my response was it's like, a, no, I think I'll finish. So I stood up, you know, kind of trembling a bit, and just kept running down down the road. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, I don't know that kid, but I'm glad he did because uh, I've learned some great life lessons uh, from that. When I got inside of the finish line, uh, I did what I always did, and I started sprinting. My, my father was just – he was left behind because he, he, he hadn't been running with me and my siblings. He'd forgotten all about it, and so I just take off running. And, um, and as I come close to the finish line, believe it or not, I wasn't so slow that the crowds dispersed. Mm-hmm. There were lots of people around still, and people would see this little kid sprinting, and they were moved. They see, oh, my gosh, he's got a number on his chest. <laughs> he's one of the people running. And uh, before I even got to the finish line, I had a couple of people run up to me with these massive flowered lays, not for a little kid. One of them had to be doubled up so they could get <laughs> over my head. And I didn't. I was just trying to finish a race. I'm like, what are you people doing? But apparently it's pretty easy for an adult to catch up to a, a six-year-old trying to finish a marathon. And uh, so, yeah, they 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 uh, caught up to me and put this lay on me as I'm trying to cross the finish line. Uh, and uh, then I did. I, I crossed the finish line a few feet in front of my father and, uh, and, and finished that. Um, and again, I'm, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the, um, you know, the the desire of that kid to do something that, you know, he had no business doing, you know, and, and, and I learned, and this was really helpful later on in, in overcoming hard things uh, is to know that you can do something and you can do like these crazy things that people, people say you shouldn't be able to do. Right. There, there's no, there's a six-year-old with no proper training, no proper gear, no proper nutrition, has no business running uh, in Hawaii. In fact, some people have asked me, it's like, and is that why you were taken away? Was that the abuse that he let, <laughs> you know, he let you do that? You could have died. No, that wasn't the abuse. Um, but yeah, you can do something just so long as you don't know that you can't. Uh, and most of my career was doing things way too big for me mm-hmm. um, because I was too stupid, stubborn, or cocky uh, <laughs> to not understand that I couldn't do it. Uh, then you go and do it because it turns out you can do hard things. Yeah. Um, something else that was that was important there that I also learned is that you don't have to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, my father, for all of his faults, and right. and uh, me and my siblings have have suffered dreadfully uh, because of his actions. Mm-hmm. Um, but notwithstanding all of his faults, he held his son in his arms. You know, he got it so he could run again. Yeah. And so there's going to be people along the way. They're going to be imperfect people. They may even be bad people. But there are going to be people along the way that will help us uh, as as we, we try to do these hard things. Yeah. Um, and they don't have to be perfect uh, to be able to help. And, uh, you know, that's, that, that's something that was really, really helpful for me, me to, me to know. And it also helped me know that I can help other people, even though I'm not perfect as well. That's um, powerful. so anyway, that's really uh, so it's that, that's, that's the marathon story. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and what a blessing to know that God uses imperfect people to help others. That's right. You know? Yeah, that's right. Wow. Powerful lessons from a five and six year old boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of crazy. So so two months after that yeah. w- was when the police came. 
Gotcha. Uh, so that was that was in December of 1984, and then in February of 1985 is when 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 the police came and uh, started in foster care. Right. Um, so yeah. So you went to foster care and on the mainland. No, this is in Hawaii. Hawaii first. Yep. And several several homes in foster care. What were um, some of the things that were going through your mind as a foster care child, besides that putting your head down on the desk and wishing that it would all just go back to normal? Yeah. Take the, us and explain to us so that we understand. No, there, there was a, a very intense desire to, to be back with my family. Um, and then, uh, and it just, it just wasn't a, a possibility. Um, my, my mother was, was, was again I said quite frail, and it turns out she was she was quite sick. Uh, she she got developed cancer just uh, within a couple of years, and and um, and so her her health declined, and our ability to see her you know, declined. The possibility of being together as a family uh, was um, you know, dissipated fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my father moved to the mainland, uh, and then my mother did as well. Uh, she moved to Utah. And with the hopes that she could convince the state to transfer uh, her children to Utah, she had family in Utah. Oh, I see. Um, and so, so we, at this point, you were still in Hawaii. Correct. Yep, we we're still in Hawaii, and uh, uh, yeah, just change, just changing home. Sometimes I was with a sibling, sometimes not. Uh, my last home in Hawaii, I was with my my older brother Michael. Okay. And uh, then we just got the news uh, a couple days before my my birthday. Um, was told, you know, I got good news and bad news. What's your good news? It's your birthday next week. What's all right? That's that, that's the good news. What's the bad news? You're moving to Utah. Mm. Okay. Uh, so on my eighth birthday, we moved to uh, got on a plane, flew flew to Utah, and um, and then uh, my my mother was hopeful that her family. I believe I believe the reason she wanted them to move us to Utah was so that we could be close to her family. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that they could be a, a an influence that didn't end up being as uh, so much the case as I think as she had hoped, um, but I think the desire is still there. You know, let's let's you know let's be together as a family until she, you know, she got sick with the cancer. We found out. Uh, I didn't uh, didn't find out that she had cancer until we were already in Utah. Uh, but sh- did she already know that? I believe that she did. I, I don't know that for sure, uh, but I believe that she did. We came in September, and I think she started her treatment in, in January or so, and uh, and then she died in April. Wow. Died in April, so they were in the process. Uh, you know, it's a really unique situation. Hawaii has jurisdiction over these kids. You're living in Utah, mm-hmm. uh, and you know. So what do you do? Everyone, you know, unification is always the goal, but it's got to be responsible unification, and so they. Uh, my parents, the the state didn't know this at the time, but they were actually they divorced. Oh. Um, but at this point, they were living together, divorced. But anyway, they decided we're going to send the kids back one by one at a time. Back to Hawaii. No, no, back to live with them. Oh. And they were living together in Utah. I see. So let's let's do this reunification. We'll do it one at a time to see if if they're able to handle having the, these children. Right. Uh, my mother's uh, chemotherapy had. Uh, ostensibly unsuccessful uh-huh. and so they put a plan to send him back and i was the first to go back uh, unfortunately she developed pneumonia and you know the week i went back is when she went back to the hospital uh, and then uh, you know died after a very very short stay uh, in the hospital uh, 
I'm not sure how the decision went to, you know, what made anyone think it'd be responsible to send six more children uh, back to uh, my father, who again was the principal uh, perpetrator of the abuse. Uh, no real improvements on you know neglect side of things, and now without a mother. But they did. They sent us all back. They did. Yes. Still one at a time. No, no, no. All at the same time. So the plan was one at a time. Mm-hmm. But after she died, they're like, oh, you know what? He's good. We'll send them all back at the same time. Oh. And so suddenly we have, we have seven kids, uh, with this one, one, uh, one guy and, um, it, it didn't work out uh, very well. At the time we were, we were, uh, living close to where, uh, my mother's parents were, mm-hmm. uh, they lived in Provo, Utah, and we were close there. And then he moved us uh, to park city. Um, but uh, there wasn't able to take care of us. Um, it, 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 it took a few months, but, uh, uh, social services were, were called in and basically um, my mother's family was called and said, uh, these children are getting shipped back to Hawaii. This isn't Utah's problem. Um, so unless you guys can do something, um, they're all they're all getting shipped out. So my mother's uh, sister and her family came up and, and got us out of the home and worked with social services to get us back into foster care. Uh, with a with a, a, a private uh, social services acting as a liaison for Hawaii, oh. and so now we end up in this very bizarre situation where your Hawaiian foster children, uh, or ch- foster children under the jurisdiction of Hawaii, living in Utah with a private organization being a liaison. Hmm. So it was it was a little bizarre, um, and then that was um, you know we're back into foster care, and. Um, uh, then the process began you know, for the termination of his rights, which happened uh, a little while later. And so th- now the seven children are available to be adopted. In the meantime, we're all in separate homes for the most part. Right. Ultimately, the four younger children were all adopted into three different homes. The, the younger girls were adopted together, and then each of the boys were adopted in different homes. And then me, my older brother, my older sister continued to, to, to move around. Um, at that point, when his rights were terminated, it wasn't a, oh, you know, maybe our family's going to get back together. It's broken and this is life. You know, your, your younger brothers and sisters are getting adopted into homes and they're looking for a permanent place for you. Um, but as you get older and you have, you know, trauma baggage, that becomes harder and harder. What was going through your mind at this time? You know, by the time I was in fifth grade, it it was it was normal for me. Mm-hmm. It, it was the new normal, uh, and that's it's what life was. Uh, once once my father's rights were terminated, my, my mother had died. Now this is this is now life. Things got a little messy uh, when I was when I was thirteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was living with a very very cool couple, but they had their own marital issues, mm-hmm. and uh, as as their marriage was falling apart, and I. I was, you know, a, foster, a child in their home, and I was actually the oldest. They had biological children; they were all younger than me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they'd actually suggested that maybe it was to give a chance to reconnect with my biological father. Mm. Um, it had been four years since I'd seen him, and I didn't know where he was. Turned out he lived, was living uh, several hundred miles away to the south, mm-hmm. but that my my older brother was actually living with him. Really? Yeah. So he he had you know, kind of run away from the system. He was he we he was one of those kids that were you've you maybe heard reports of you know kids being in the system they're just lost they have no idea where they are 
mm-hmm. he was one of them, and I kind of became one of those <laughs> as as uh, their marriage was falling apart, and I left to, to go live with him. Um, you know, kind of unlawfully, I guess, yeah. as his rights were terminated and stuff and, and went to go live with him in, in Southern Utah, mm-hmm. actually, uh, just, uh, in a little town right next to Zion national park, mm-hmm. uh, called, called Apple Valley. In, in our case, um, he, he was borrowing a trailer, uh, from somebody. And, uh, so, and it was a nice trailer. It was a nice trailer. Um, but he'd remarried at that point and she didn't live with us. Uh, she lived, uh, about you know, 15, 20 miles away. And so he sp- split his time there and then up uh, living with uh, these two teenage boys, you know, 14 and, and 16 years old. Um, and it was, it, was, it was tough there. Uh, thankfully, he'd worked on his, his issues enough that he wasn't abusive, uh, physically abusive, that is. And, um, but he wasn't a big person. He wasn't a big big man. I matured fairly quickly, physically mm-hmm. speaking. And so by the time I was 14, I was about five foot 11 at that point. My brother was six foot, six foot one mm-hmm. uh, at 16. Both of us very physically uh, active and you know, quite strong. And and so so that, that physical abuse wasn't there. Uh, he'd gotten uh, in touch with his Native American roots. Uh, he, he's uh, a Native American by by birth, and had kind of gotten in touch with Native American spirituality to kind of uh, deal with his his inner demons, and so so while that part was better, mm-hmm. it wasn't a great situation. He wasn't a great father, um, wasn't a great role model, and he wasn't a great teacher uh, there. So it was just two traumatized boys raising themselves not full lord of the flies or anything like that but uh, and we cared about each other uh very very much and uh, but it was just it was a lot of times on our own just out there in this this trailer we, we didn't have heat we didn't have electricity we didn't have telephones or anything like that and frequently didn't have a lot of food um thankfully and you know money for clothes what weren't there or anything and i'm growing uh thankfully the kindness of of others um one of my friends you know supplied a lot of clothes for me mm-hmm. uh so i didn't have to deal with with being made you know fun of for having you know pants that were six inches too short or whatever mm-hmm. uh so it, it was it was all right but it, it wasn't great um but then there was a, a turning point that happened when i was living with him why don't you tell us about that so I'd been there about six months mm-hmm. and we were driving in a borrowed car um, back to our, our borrowed trailer. And he said to me, he's like, you know, Robert, I think it's time that we bring your younger brothers and sisters home. And I said, well, what did you say? We need to bring your brothers and sisters home. And they'd already been adopted, right? One had been adopted oh. and uh, two were about to be adopted. And a third one was in the home where he would be adopted. So he's there with their permanent families. Mm-hmm. They have lives. They haven't seen him for, uh, you know, for years. Uh, many of them, their only memories of him are terror. Yeah. Um, and, and they have lives. They have some, some semblance of stability. They have a chance to forge a normal life. And w- what we had wasn't really a home more than it was a borrowed shelter. Right. And so in as nice of words as I could, I told him that I thought it was a bad idea. Uh, and that I'm sure came across as very disrespectful and that escalated quickly into a, 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 a bit of a confrontation, mm-hmm. um, a lot of yelling, uh, heated exchanges, got to the, got to the part or to the, uh, to the trailer 
uh, went inside, continued inside uh, the trailer. And it, it came to this point. I, I don't remember how it did, but, but finally he, I, he was trying to show how much improvement he'd made mm -hmm. as a person. And so in this moment, he yells at me. He's like, you know, you know, why do you think I don't beat you and your brother anymore? And my response back was, because we're bigger than you. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, well, and, that's, that's logical to a teenage boy, right? Right. Now, now so he's, he was five foot nine. I'm five <laughs> foot 11. Brother six, six foot one. You know, we were taller than he was. He's a full grown man. Right. I was 14 years old. Right. right. So while I may have been taller than he was, I certainly wasn't brawn and right. thicker than he was. And uh, so he, he essentially challenged me to make it physical. You know, so he kind of called me on and he knew that I had a history of, of fighting. Um, and, uh, and, and so, so I was like, all right, you know what? It will feel, it'll probably feel pretty good just to, and so I'm the, the natural response was, all right, all right that's fine. And as I got, got ready to, to take my first swing, a thought came through my mind, um, which was the first time that, that, uh, time had ever stood still for me. Um, and that was just a thought came to my mind. It's like, you're about to hit your father. You don't have to. I, I felt like I had to. Mm -hmm. um, there was a time when I was in that first foster home, where that, I told you, or that second foster home, where there was a bully. Mm -hmm. That bully one day was coming at me at the hall. Mm -hmm. He saw me. It was just the two of us. Mm -hmm. He saw me, and um, I had a pencil in my, my hand. He swung at me. I stepped back out of his swing, and as his arm came across my body, I stabbed him in the back. Um, and uh, I'm sure it, that went over really well. Yeah, no, it was it, it was frowned upon. <laughs> but it was people actually understood. They're yeah. like, "Oh, this kid's going through so much, right?" But the reality, and, and maybe it was justified, but it wasn't conscious. Right. It was just what you did, mm -hmm. right? Someone's attacking you, you attack back. Right. Uh, someone's egging you on, you you respond, right? And so it was the first time now, fast forward years later, where I realized I don't have to hit him, All right? He's being aggressive. I don't have to be aggressive back. I could, I could hit him or I could try to, you know, get under his skin or I could go back to my room at the back of the trailer or I could turn around and walk away. Mm. It was the first time I realized that I had a choice. Wow. And so I turned around, walked out. Went to the nearest uh, friend who had a phone, half mile away or something like that. Mm -hmm. Called the police. They came and got me, wow. uh, and I was back in in uh, in state's custody. Um, and so that's that was uh, that was a very important day for me. Yeah. It was the first time I realized, oh, I get to choose. Mm -hmm. um, my grades before then not good. I was not a stellar student. Um, but, uh, but I realized I, I, I do, I, I get to choose uh, literally overnight. Um, my grades, first quarter, second quarter, third quarter look like someone who's going to be, you know, a high school dropout type uh, person, straight A's really? the, the next quarter. The only difference I didn't get any smarter or anything. Like that. The only difference is I chose to do my stuff. All right. I have an assignment. All right, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to turn it in, turn it on time, make sure it gets turned in at all, uh, which wasn't what I would do beforehand. And because now I'm doing my assignments, I kind of understand the material. Uh, if I come to something that's hard, instead of just quitting or stopping and not caring, I go ask for help. 
Mm. Um, and so, so, and that was a conscious decision because I recognized like, all right, well, I'm going to have to provide for myself. This guy's not providing for me and I'm not going to go, I'm going to go back in state's custody. The likelihood of, um, finding a home of my own is yeah, a permanent home is, it's not good. So, right. so it's, it's going to be up to me. And, wow. um, uh, about it, I don't know, maybe six months later or so. Uh, I'm now living far away, uh, and I'm actually living with my old best friend's family. So moved back to the neighborhood uh, where I'd been in a couple different foster homes, and I'm now in a third foster home, which was actually like my first foster home, my best friend's family, mm. um, who had been a really good friend for the years I was I was in his neighborhood. And so I'm 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 sitting there in in uh, in their house, and they were great, so good, you know, such good people, but. It was like I was living in a friend's home. Mm-hmm. It wasn't your home. Right. It, it wasn't your family. Uh, and again, that's to take nothing from them because they were amazing right. in, in so so many ways. But it was like you're living with your you know with a friend, mm-hmm. and it just just dawned on me. All right, you know what? The first family that you're likely to have is the the family you make on your own. Mm-hmm. All right. So what am I going to need to do to make make that family? Um. And uh, I made decided. I decided then that I try to make myself in the kind of person that someone I'd want to marry would marry. Mm-hmm. I'd make myself the kind of person uh, that would be the kind of dad that I'd want to have. And it was it was a choice. And it wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't had that just that split second moment uh, where I understood for the first time. Oh my goodness! I get to choose. Mm-hmm. I don't have to, because I've got a pencil in my hand and a kid swinging at me. I don't have to stab him in the back, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm completely angry and pissed off at this guy who's you know, scarred my body. Yeah, I don't have to hit him. I yeah. can choose, um, and that's that made made, made all the, all the difference. Uh, I have I have a scar across my cheek. Uh-huh. See that that line yeah. there? Yeah, that's that's from him. Mm-hmm. It's from him. Fitter rage when I was five. Uh, kicking me down the hall, slice my cheek open on something, you know, wow. blood, blood all over the place. Um, you know, that was, you know, that was, you know, three, four decades ago, right. <laughs> you know, it, it's still there. And every time I shave, every time I look in the mirror, it could be a reminder of what was taken, the pain that was there. Um, and you know, you know, how I was victimized as a child. Right. Um, it's, it's, it could always be there for that. It's not, it really isn't. How do you see it? So anyway, at this point, no, it's it's just it's just there. Um, but yeah, it can be a good reminder that my my kids aren't going to have that, you know. And um, uh, that's um, it's it's a it's a constant way to remind me that I get to choose. Right. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll have Rob tell us a little bit about how his siblings have handled all of this. How many of you out there feel like your life is chaotic, crazy, and completely awful compared to the norm? What if I were to tell you that you are normal for you? I am so excited to announce that my book, Normal For Me by Tamara K. Anderson is now available for purchase on Amazon. This book took me 10 years to write and I share 20 years worth of lessons learned in my life detours, including being in a car accident and having two of my children diagnosed on the autism spectrum. In this book, I share the secrets of how I made it 
from despair to peace with God's help. I also include a bonus Diagnosis Survival Guide at the very end of my Normal For Me book. The Diagnosis Survival Guide includes 12 tips to survive and thrive in tough times. Wouldn't you like to know what those are? So what are you waiting for? Grab your copy of Normal For Me today on Amazon. And we're back. I am speaking with Robert P.K. Mooney about the amazing aha moments he had in the foster care system when he realized he had the right to choose his own future. Now, Rob, tell me a little bit about your other siblings who were in the foster care system. Was this as easy of a choice for them? Um, you know, a few years ago, um, yeah. my, my, my younger siblings, they, they struggled as well, even though they were adopted. Mm-hmm. And my younger brother uh, uh, died just a couple of years ago from a from meth poisoning. Um, he's, he could never, even though he was, he was the first one to get adopted, he could never break out and recognize that he gets to choose to be a victim or not. Mm. Um, I took him to, to lunch about four years ago and uh, we were just talking, just catching up meeting, you know, and the, like he moved back to Hawaii, uh, and, uh, essentially disowned his adoptive family and, um, and as we were at lunch, he was telling me about why it had so, so many problems with, with drugs and alcohol and uh, other difficulties. And he was like, it's really because of the way my adopted father treated me and, you know, kind of going off on all the stuff that you know, is the reason why he, he uh, uh, had s- such substance abuse issues. Mm-hmm. And knowing what I know mm-hmm. about our ability to choose, I just looked at him across the table for a while. And when he realized I wasn't saying anything, mm-hmm. he looked at me and suddenly he had probably for the first time a recognition that, and my choice is too. Mm. Um, yeah, you have to recognize that you get to choose. And um, unfortunately, he didn't internalize that. Right. So, so anyway, and it ultimately took his life. So the choice then becomes for people that have had an abusive upbringing? Are you going to let that abusive upbringing rule your life and play the victim? Correct. Because there's plenty of reasons you can claim that. Or are you gonna choose and say, I am the captain of my own destiny. I am going to change this. Yeah. Because I have the power to change it. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I think uh, the greatest blessing that, that God has given me mm-hmm. is the ability to choose. Mm-hmm. The second greatest blessing he gave me is the understanding that I get to choose. Um, and so as hard as that year was when I was 14 yeah. and it, it was, it was hard. Yeah. Um, I could have, there's been so many paths that could have taken me you know, to, to my death or worse. Right. And, um, but even though that was really hard, it gave me that moment where I, I came to understand that I could choose, and that makes makes all the difference. Um, if we let that the abuse, and the neglect, and the hurt, the betrayal uh, continue to er- erode our spirits, uh, then we just we allow um, those perpetrators to continue to victimize us. Mm. Um, the reality is, is is what I try to teach kids, yeah. uh, kids who who are are from hard places. I try to tell them, help them understand you've been victimized. 
You're not a victim. Mm. You get to choose that. Uh, you get to choose how you're going to respond to that. Um, and, and that's a, it's a two-edged sword, right? Yeah. Uh, you become the master of your own destiny, but when you choose wrong, which you're going to do. Yes. Yeah. You know, my just because I understood at that point that I now get to choose <laughs> does not mean my choices were great. All right. I made right. lots of boneheaded mistakes and then th those were mine. Yes. They weren't because I was abused as a child. They weren't because of whatever else the case may, may, may be. Uh -huh. um, it, it was me. Yeah. I, I made that those choices. And, uh, but the great thing is uh, the third and, and, overarching thing that, that God gave me is, is, is a way to, to, to fix those times when I choose a miss, um, which I, I do all the time. Uh, but thankfully there, there's that, uh, that infinite love that allows me to, to make those things right. Repentance. That's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds to me like your choices have helped you realize the power of both repentance and it's got to be forgiveness. Yeah, abs absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because th that that forgiveness is is key because it's a choice. Yes, it is. And, and it, it's key to not continuing uh, to allow, uh, not continuing to be a victim of uh, other people's yeah. uh, bad actions. So let me ask you this: Have you forgiven your father? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. I had to. Do it twice. Tell me about. Uh, notwithstanding all the stuff, I still had this love and this connection for him, and this yearning to, to be there. And that's probably where why my foster parents, when I was thirteen, mm -hmm. suggested that we reconnect. Right. right? Um, and so, even when someone's cut your face open, they're still your dad. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and so there's there, there there's that love there. But then, you know, things go, go sideways uh, as, as a teenager. Um, I came to recognize, listen, you got to let all that go. You got to let that go uh, as part of, you know, this kind of a, a new understanding as, a, as an older teenager that I'm going to forge my own life. Yeah. Um, part of that's going to be um, forgiving them. And it, it wasn't that hard when I was mindful of it. Mm -hmm. uh, took prayer um, and I asked for divine help. And uh, it 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 wasn't wasn't too hard. The second time, yeah, uh, was years later, yeah, when I became a father, mm -hmm. um, and there was a hurt kind of all over again, um, because I've got this new son, mm. and I recognized I would do anything for him, yeah, and and the thought came to me is like. There's nothing anybody could do to keep me from the child. If, as he'd claimed for so long, um, you know, my children were wrongfully taken away, and that was kind of his, his marching, his his battle cry. Mm -hmm. You know, the, my children were stolen from me. Mm. Let's just say that was the case. There was not. There'd be nothing to stop me from getting back. I, I would do anything I needed to uh, to have my children back uh, with me, uh, and, and, and to, to, to be that presence in, in their life. And so I felt kind of this new wave of abandonment, um, as, right. as it were, it was like, right. Holy crap, this is so awesome. I couldn't imagine loving somebody so much. Oh, he didn't have that. Mm. Um, and if he did, he was willing to walk away from it. 
Right. Uh, and so there was like this new wave wave of hurt. Uh, but the same thing applied, right? You know, the same situation, like, you know, looking uh, at the, the, the pain in the mirror, right? You recognize that it's there. You feel the pain. And then you choose to let it go. You choose to let it go. So, so anyway, yeah. Did that happen? You prayed your way through that and gave it to God or? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. I, I learned that what the Lord did for me mm-hmm. wasn't just taking away my sins. Mm-hmm. He can heal my heart. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the frequent things that uh, I've cried uh, is that it's like, there's a hole in my heart. I just need you to fill it. And sometimes it takes time. And uh, there's there, you know, always an ache, you know, when I think of my sister uh, who took her own life, there's an ache. I think my mother, there's an ache. It's still there, but it's healed. Uh, it's it's healed. And so that's what you do. You turn it over. You know, I, I don't want to feel the, these feelings. You know, uh, I'd rather be filled with light. This feels dark. Um, take, take them back to the light. And, and it happens. It takes time, um, but it happens if, if you're willing to. So. so perhaps your advice to people who are in a similar situation and struggling to forgive is give it to God and be patient as he helps you fill that hole? Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes what's been filling the hole mm-hmm. is the anger and the rage. Mm. It's part of what's keeping you whole, uh, mm. you think. Yeah. Um, but what you really have is, is you have you have a void in your life and you're filling it um, with that anger, with that, that hatred, uh, with that hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out there there's a master healer who, if you'll give it to him, he'll fill it up with love. Um, it's it's possible. It's real. Yeah. So just be patient. Yeah. Give God the time and uh, allow him the ability to come in and heal you. Choose that, yeah, as you would say. Absolutely. And, and and then there will be times where your your actions uh, can be separate from your feelings, that can be separate from your thoughts, uh, where you may feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. But you would recognize, my if I were to act in this way, it would be inconsistent with uh, with having forgiven somebody. So, so act e- as if you have forgiven. Absolutely. Until it's complete. Correct. Ooh, yeah. That's a powerful bit of advice. And that's a choice. Yes, it is. Even though in your heart you feel... I'd like to hurt this person. <laughs> I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose not to. Right. It's right. a choice. He gave you the power to choose. Yeah. And part of that is choosing to let him heal you. Yeah. Part of that is is doing, the doing um, what he would have you do, mm-hmm. even when you don't feel like it. Right. So. Yeah. Wow. That is. That's really. I love the act as if. Until until you're completely healed. And it will happen. So maybe cling to that hope that someday your heart will be whole and there will be love in those places where there's now darkness and pain. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 one of the one of the great blessings of being a father mm-hmm. um, is that there are ample opportunities to fill your heart with love. Um, and so I love being a dad um, just because uh, for, for that reason, being a husband, being a father, you are given, it's, 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 it's like God's you know, architecture, his design for giving you opportunities to love, giving you opportunities to serve, giving you opportunities to grow. It's one of the great things about being a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that uh, that I'm, I'm I'm grateful I have that that blessing. Uh, my wife and I, you know, we've got our four children, but we also have, have served as foster parents as well. Um, and uh, so there's there's an infinite need for for parents, and for someone who is, I'm inherently selfish. Uh, no, I, I I am, um, but it's it reflects in altruistic acts because those bring me joy. Right. Right. You know, the only truly altruistic person would be would be God. You yeah. know, you know, he was God, mm-hmm. but he still gave everything. He didn't have to. He had nothing to gain uh, from uh, from that. But but he he did it anyway. Whereas me, you know, I always have something to gain. You know, <laughs> it's completely wholesome. Right. It's you know, you know, I gain this incredible feeling in my heart when I do this with my children, and uh-huh. I feel this closeness with my wife when I treat her with respect, and all these sorts of things. Um, you know. Someday, you know, I, I hope I never get that a terrible test where God's like, all right, well, Rob, I'm going to take away all those good feelings and we'll see if you still do do the right thing. I hope that doesn't come because I really do. Uh, I love I love being in a family. Well, and it's amazing that you, I think, looking back on that child who ran the marathon, it just goes to show that once you were fixed and determined to choose your own life, to choose to be different there's nothing that's going to stop you. You are going to finish that race. Yeah, yeah, for, for, yeah, from time time to time. But there's there's been there's been help. Uh, one of the things uh, at, right now, I I I speak to kids that are in foster care mm-hmm. uh, to try, especially kids that are likely to age out. You know, right. your adoptability kind of drops down. You know, hit 14, 15. It's hard to find a permanent home for those kids, and so uh, states will frequently change the focus to uh, transitioning to adult living. Um, right. And see what you can do to make you know make a, a positive life. The statistics for those those kids aren't aren't good, uh, and so one of the things that I I you know, try and tell these these kids is number one you can do these hard things. And I use the marathon as an example of doing something ridiculously hard that you have no business doing, but you can still do it. Um, but I do point out that you don't you don't have to do it alone. Normally, God sends angels in the form of people around us. Yes, He does. Imperfect people, but they're there. But even if they're not. And physically, you're utterly, utterly alone. You're still got someone who's going to help you through, yeah. uh, and then that, and that's the Lord, and that's absolutely true. Yeah, God's always there. Yeah, I, I learned that from from a friend. You know, from a friend when I was when I was living with uh, my best friend. Uh-huh. You know, when I was uh, 15, um, I was with a group of guys, and as guys do, from time to time. Uh, teenage guys, they were complaining about their families. <laughs> oh, I hate my mom. She's making me do this. Oh, yeah, my sister. Anyway, it ended up just being this big old gripe fest uh, with my friends. And I was kind of just kind of silent through that. Sure. And I, I said to one, I was like, you know, it, afterwards, just, just one-on-one, it really bugs me to hear you guys complain about your families. Uh, I'd really like one. And you guys treat them like they're garbage. And um, to his credit, who he was participating in the uh, the family bash, uh, he said to me, he's like, he's like, well, you know, Rob, if you want a family, you can ask God. He can give you one. And I never, <laughs> I never thought of of God as being a person who could provide a family. And um, and so I uh, I went to my my bed. I lived in in the storage room of my friend's place. They, they had a bed and I knelt down next to it in my, my spot. 
you know, and just said a very simple prayer, you know, God, Joseph, says, you can be a family if you can, I'd really like one. And the very, very, very next day, nothing happened. <laughs> and the next day, nothing happened and so on and so forth. And, and, um, if I, I kept asking, I, I and I kept just, all right, I'll, I can be patient. And a week is long for the 15-year-old. A couple months is even longer. But I continue to ask. Uh, simple, simple prayer. I'd like, I'd like a family. And then, then my social worker calls me. And she has, she's like, I think I've got a perfect home for you. And um, we go and she picks me up and drives me to this place. Mm-hmm. And it was like this vision dream come true mm. tennis court swimming pool big old mansion I'm like you're kidding me <laughs> like oh my gosh this this prayer stuff works really really well <laughs> oh, and, I, and i go and i meet these people and they are dynamic and gregarious and they have these older daughters and they've got a son who's always wanted a big brother and he's several years younger than me uh and we just hit it off and they wanted to make sure uh, that I was the right, you know, right fit for them to come to come to their home, and so we spent several weeks with me coming and visiting them, and they had boats. We went boating together. You, you know? probably loved that. Oh as my! A teenager. Oh my goodness! Yeah, no, they had <laughs> basketball courts. I mean, it was like it was like this. Oh my goodness! I'm going to I'm going to go live with you know a family that has all of this, mm-hmm. and they're crazy cool, and they're just like me, and very gregarious and outgoing and athletic. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Um, and uh, I was like, wow, prayer, prayer's absolutely amazing. Uh, I, I could get into this prayer thing. <laughs> and, um, and then after a couple of weeks, uh, we, they, they had me come over for just a kind of a family council, as it were. And I knew something was wrong because the kids were crying. And um, the mom and dad, they were very religious people, very religious people. They said, Rob, we've been praying really hard about having you come live with, with us. And we love you, but it's not the right place. Um, uh, and so we're not going to have you come live here. And, and I was heartbroken. Before I left, the dad said, Rob, uh, we, 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 we truly love you. And it's kind of coming on hollow, the hollow ears, but um, we, we truly love you. And the only reason you're not coming here um, is because either you've got more to learn from your situation or because the Lord has something better for you. And I went back to my bed in my, my buddy's home, quite confident there wasn't anything better because this was really awesome. And it was a little bitter, yeah. actually. And so I realized, all right, that the home that I'm going to make is going to be the, my own home um, and was fixed and determined that that's what it was going to be. So my caseworker, she was concerned. Now, you, the likelihood of finding a, a, a permanent home is now virtually gone. And she was like, well, you need to make sure that you're able to provide for yourself. And so she advised for me to do my 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 uh, my junior year over the summer at uh, at the second you know the uh, alternative school and so I did so all right I'm gonna go prepare for myself and so I I did my my junior year over that summer 
um, fixed and determined to, to make my family uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, my social worker called me and there was, she said, um, Rob, um, there's a girl who was adopted when she was young and she's having some, some troubles, you know, identity issues, if you will. Would you be willing to come just talk to her and help lift her spirits? Yeah, sure. Of course I'll, I'll come talk to her. So I, I go to talk to her and she was, she was having troubles. Um, but, but, uh, I didn't know that what was happening, uh, was that that girl's family was, was kind of just checking me out incognito, mm-hmm. uh, to see whether or not I should come live with them. And they decided that, uh, that they did want me to come live with them. And so the summer before my senior year, I moved in, um, with the place uh, that my, my kids call grandma and grandpa now. And the amazing thing about my parents um, is that unlike the other family who was amazed, so amazing and so much like me, uh, my parents were um, soft-spoken. They were hard workers. They, they were more reserved and, and, and they had qualities that I didn't have. Uh, where I was, where I was weak, uh, that was where their greatest strengths were. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I only lived with them for a year before I graduated from high school and went to college, um, they helped make me a complete person. And I was able to look back and think, huh, the Philip, the, the other family, they, they felt right to me. They appeared uh, right to me. But, but God, he didn't want to answer my prayers the way I wanted to. Uh, he knew how to answer them perfectly. Mm. Um, and so I was grateful for the fact that he showed me what I, what I could have had uh, and then inspired a, a, devoted, uh, a, a de- devoted follower of Christ to say the words to me that, uh, that, that Heavenly Father might have something better for me. So that when uh, he did show it to me, I could recognize that in reality, um, he knew how to answer my prayers perfectly. That's beautiful. So perhaps it's that lesson of patience again. And not just patience, but trusting that God can see that end outcome and that he has your best interests at heart. Yeah. yeah. He, he knew that this other family would be the perfect fit in that they could probably help make you whole. Yep, that's absolutely right. So again, it's a, a, a great opportunity to, to be taught that, uh, where you know I, I came to learn um, that uh, he's there. I'm grateful for a friend who, who gave me the idea. Um, and then I'm grateful for the way it played out so that I could learn that he's there, he answers prayers, and he answers them perfectly. Uh, it is in his own time. Yes. <laughs> and it's in his own way. And I've, over the years, I've come to trust that his own way is better than what I would have drawn up. <laughs> yep. That's, that's really awesome. So you, Ben, you have written a book for foster care children. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, uh, my focus in my education was being able to pr- provide for my family. Right. 
Uh, I've, I've had a, a career, a really successful career as a lawyer uh, and have done really well there. A lot of people go to law because they want to change the world. I didn't. I went to law as a means to be able to provide for my, my children and my wife. Uh, that was my, my focus. Um, now, definitely be able to do good through along the way, and I, I feel like I've been able to do that. Uh, however, my career is so frequently taken away from my my, uh, my family. Right. And uh, while I've, I think I've been a really, really good husband and father, uh, a lot of times I've had to do it from a distance because I've had to travel a lot. Well, over the years, people have heard my story, and and people have told me, uh, in you know, many different parts of the world, and uh, in many different places. Oh my goodness, Rob, you've got it. You have to write a book. You got it. Yes. You have to tell your story, and um, and so I'd always planned on writing uh, writing a book, not not a memoir uh, to tell a life story, but something to to help kids. Uh, these foster kids are likely to age out. Right. Uh, even though I moved in with this family when I was a senior, uh, I I was never adopted, mm-hmm. uh, aged out of the system, and I, I I understand that the road is tough for these kids. Yes, uh, you lived it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, you know, and and uh, so I wanted to write a book that would uh, share some lessons, yes, and hopefully inspire these kids to re- help them recognize that they can choose to be successful, and that that book's uh, ready to come out. The title uh, of, of the book is A Foster Kid's Road to Success. Awesome. And it's short. It's simple. It's intended to help these kids, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, maybe even kids who have aged out, uh, who are trying to, to forge on their own, uh, help them understand how they can choose to be successful. Yeah. Um, help them understand that they can do it. You know, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you can do it. Yeah. And a little kid around a marathon, you, know, <laughs> you can do it. Yes. Uh, my hope for them is that it, quote unquote, it is that they can forge meaningful, deep family relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can, they can love, they can be loved. Right. They can need other people and they mm-hmm. can be needed by other people. I want them for them. Yes. But truthfully, whatever their it is, I want them to know they can do it. Yeah. And I want them to know that they can choose to do it and how, how, how to guard that choice. Uh, and so it's not long. It's short, just a few chapters, uh, pretty, pretty easy read. Uh, and uh, I now go and I, I speak to groups of these kids uh, who are likely to age out, you know, yeah. foster kids in the system or who have recently left the system. So is there a verse of scripture that's become meaningful to you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know. Um, when, when you are all alone in a storage room, <laughs> um, thinking that, you know, there, there's nobody there and you've been kind of cast away and forgotten, uh, there's a scripture that can remind us that that's not, that's not true. Uh, the Lord tells us in Isaiah that he remembers us. He's not going to forget us, uh, so much so that he's actually, you know, graven us upon the palms of his hands. Um, it's in Isaiah forty nine sixteen. Uh, so while we may feel forgotten, we're never, never alone. That's beautiful, and that's brought you comfort and helped you make it through. Thank you for sharing that. If there is anyone that has just really resonated with this message, is there a way that they can find you on social media that you would like to share with us? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I believe I'm on Instagram at uh, at Robert P K Mooney, mm-hmm. uh, and I think on Facebook, I think it's just Robert P K Mooney uh, <laughs> is is a way to find it. My website is www.robertpkmooney.com. That's P as in Paul, K as in Kite. Robertpkmooney.com. Uh, that's that's my website. So you can find out more information there. And another really cool thing you can find on Rob's website is the ability to purchase one of these books for a foster care child. And this is an amazing service opportunity. So go to Rob's website, robertpkmooney.com. I will put that information in the show notes so that if you do want to contact Rob, you can find that information in the show notes on my website. Thank you so much, Rob, for sharing your story of hope and for continuing to motivate others to also find that same hope. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show. I know that there are many of you out there that are going through a hard time, and I hope you found things that have been useful today as you listen to the podcast. If you would like to access the show notes from today's podcast, visit my website. It is storiesofhopepodcast.com. That is where you'll find favorite quotes from today's episode and shareable memes. And those are fun because you can share them with your friends on social media. You will also find the links mentioned throughout today's episode so you don't have to remember what those were. And also all the tips that were shared. Sometimes tips are shared so much throughout an episode you forget. What were those great things? So go to the show notes, storiesofhopepodcast.com to look up these fantastic resources. You know, if someone kept coming to mind during today's episode, perhaps that means that you should share this with them. Maybe there was a story shared or a tip that they really, really need to hear. So go ahead and share this episode with them. May God bless you, especially if you are struggling with hope to carry on and with the strength to keep going when things get tough. Remember to walk with Christ, and He will help bear that burden. Above all else, remember God loves you.